So since we're a small group, um, well, no, maybe I'll just have you uh, meet the people in your vicinity, introduce yourself, say where you're from, what brings you here, whatever you want to say. I'll just give you a few minutes to do that so that you get to meet the people around you. Hmm, enough of that. We're going to be silent now. <laughs> well, we're going to be silent, maybe. Let's see. Hmm. So there are a few people who have come, you know, are, are relatively new to meditation. So I'm going to give some uh, pretty detailed instructions tonight. Um, but before we start, what I'd like you to do is to really establish your dignified posture in practice. And so that means if you're sitting in a, in a, on a chair, um, see if you can sit without your back having to be into the chair because it, it really takes your, it saps your energy when you sit with your back, uh, your shoulders um, supported by the chair unless you have a a, a medical issue where you need to do that. So it's fine to support the middle of your back, but to have the b top of your back free. And if you're sitting on a cushion, to try to have your knees, your knees down on the, supported by the, the cushion, the, the zabutan, which is the flat cushion. And to really pay attention to your posture so taking a deep breath in, allowing your posture to open. And the, one of the really um, keys in meditation is to not be so efforting, to be so effortful about your meditation, but really to be quite relaxed. So your posture needs to be the template for that kind of relaxation, which means that your posture can, should be upright and dignified, and yet at the same time not kind of you know, stretched, and, but really relaxed, so that your shoulders feel relaxed, your back feels relaxed, but there's an erect, erectness about, an uprightness about the way you're sitting so that you feel dignified and yet at the same time, if you look at people who are, have been trained for years as royalty, when they sit, they have a dignity to them. And yet, if you look at them, they're not stiff. They're not, they're quite relaxed. So if we can somehow feel that, uh, those two principles of alertness and relaxation at the same time, that will really help you. So once you establish how the body is, what I'd like you to do is to just um, reflect for a moment on your intention for being here. What brought you here?
and what will keep you here. And, you know, the wise intention is the second step on the Buddha's path. And how he defined it was wise, um, the wise intention to be harmless, to not do harm to a single being, even the smallest mosquito. So harmlessness. And the second intention that he said was really wise is the intention for goodwill, to have goodwill to everybody that you meet. And that includes yourself. That it starts with yourself. Can you feel some friendliness, some kindness, some goodwill towards yourself? So I recommend that as one intention. That's possible. It may not be your intention, and that's okay. And the third intention is one of renunciation. And renunciation to Westerners can feel a little bit um, puritanical, as if we want to renounce everything that feels good, looks good, is good. But that's not what the Buddha meant. What he meant was that we look at the mental habits that we have that have not been supportive to us. So habits of greed, wanting things to be a certain way when they're not. Habits of aversion, hating things. And habits of delusion or ignorance where we ignore what is true. So we renounce these habits of mind and what that means is that we start to look at our meditation practice. If we have these intentions of harmlessness and kindness and renunciation or whatever other intentions you have, maybe you have an intention to be still, to be quiet, to just be in a place of peace. That's okay too. Whatever your intention is, that's fine. So I'll give you just a moment to reflect on that. Once you have determined your intention to let that be the ground on which you practice. So if you have an intention for kindness, can your heart open to kindness? If you have an intention for renunciation, renouncing these habits of mind. Can you make a, a vow to begin to see these habits of mind 
because to, to renounce them means we must know them first. Whatever else is your intention to see how your meditation can contribute to the fulfillment of that intention. And let that be your guide as you move into meditation. Just settling in, letting go of the day's uh, activities of mind, heart and body. Letting go of any plans or hopes or fears for the future and coming to this present moment. Just allowing all of the thoughts about yesterday and last week and last month and the moment before and the breath before to let all of that dissipate and see how you can actually feel this body sitting here. What does it feel like? Can you feel the tingling in your hands and your feet? Other sensations in the body? Really pay attention. Can you feel the breathing of your body? And any time you feel yourself trying really hard, see if you can let go of that trying. The effort of no effort is what's required. You've been feeling your body your whole life, so you don't need to make any kind of effort to feel it. Just direct your attention to how the body feels. So what's here in the body? Tension, tightness, tingling, burning, relaxation, ease, anxiety. Where does the body feel tight and where does it feel light? Is there any way in which it can feel freer or lighter? Perhaps you need to drop your shoulders 
or let your belly really fill up with the air on the in-breath. Or perhaps you need to pay closer attention to the tingling of the fingers. What is here for you in the body? And can you feel the sensations of your breath coming in and going out? Perhaps you can feel it at the nostrils where the air brushes the upper lip. Or perhaps you just feel the expansion and contraction of your chest or of your belly rising and falling. How do you feel your breath? And again, great effort isn't required or needed. Just the ability to direct the attention. And then just notice when the mind wants to jump off of the breath or the body. It wants to become engaged in some idea or speculation or mental conversation about what's going on. And maybe it's not about what's going on now, but what went on today or what's going on, what might happen next week or tomorrow or tonight. Just notice that. And when that idea or thought ends and nothing else is particularly drawing your attention, let the attention rest again on the body. Whether it's the breath or the sensations in the body or the posture of the body Just coming back to that. Letting the attention, your whole awareness, be filled up with how it is to be in a body. Perhaps you hear sounds. Perhaps You think thoughts. Perhaps you feel sensations. What's the most noticeable thing that's happening? Don't strain. Don't make a huge effort. Just sitting here right now with your experience. And then notice where the attention naturally falls. Perhaps it's on the breath. 
Perhaps it's on the posture of the body. Perhaps it's on the sensations of the body. Let whatever experience is predominant that presents itself to your attention be the object of your meditation. Can you know that experience really deeply? Not on a superficial level, but let your attention drop into your experience. And if all of that feels like it's too busy, there's too much going on, you can just let your attention fall on the movement of your breath, your belly moving, or the air coming out of your nostrils, or your chest moving. See if you can just allow that attention to happen. And there's one other thing happening as you sit here quietly paying attention in this present moment. And that is there's a mood in the mind. Joy, sorrow, curiosity, interest, boredom, restlessness, happiness, sadness. regret or perhaps the mind is becoming concentrated or not concentrated or it feels wide or narrow see if you can notice how it is how the mind is so that you have an awareness of 360 degrees of your experience right now in this moment. And just know that whatever is happening, whatever the mood of the mind is, whatever thoughts or emotions, sensations in the body are arising, whatever draws the attention whatever pulls the attention becomes predominant in your experience is a perfectly worthy object of meditation. If you're feeling as if all of this is too much, you can use a whole other method of meditation. Or if you're falling asleep and you're not alert, just pay attention to every breath and count your breaths from one to five. So one in-breath and out-breath is one. Second in-breath and out-breath is two. The third in-breath and out-breath is three. And the fourth. And then the fifth. And then you start again at one. Any of these methods are perfectly fine methods of meditation. 
And if you lose track of the count, just start again at one. Notice if you're judging your experience and see if you can let that judgment go. And when you lose your way, when the attention goes to the future or to the past, notice that and simply come back to awareness in the present moment without judgment. just do a little bit of movement and then we'll talk. So let's um, just see if there are any questions about the meditation, the, the instructions themselves or the practice itself before we move on to Dharma questions. So I know there are a few beginners in the room tonight, so if you have any confusion at all, please, it's okay to ask really what you th may think are really basic questions, which probably 95% of the people in the room ha will have. Yes, yes. So the question is, how do you keep your mind from jumping to everything but breathing? Anybody else have a problem with that? <laughs> Just a few of you, yeah. yeah. I guess the rest of you were perfectly still and the mind was like turned off, right? No, no. So that's the first insight of insight meditation is that the mind is like a monkey and in the text, they call it a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion. <laughs> Sound familiar? That's how your mind feels? So the answer is you don't <laughs> keep it from you because what you're learning when you see your mind like that is that it's not within your control, right? But we do have the ability to pay attention and we pay and we notice how when we even trying we're trying to pay attention that the mind drifts so in that instant we just notice what it's like for the mind to drift because in meditation whatever comes up that is like really the um the main feature of the moment that's what you pay attention to so if in the, in the moment, the main feature is that the mind is, you know, pinging all over the place, we just pay attention to that. See, oh, that's what it's like. That's what it feels like. And then you, when the mind is kind of, you know, not pinging quite so rapidly, then you place the attention back on the breath or back on the, the feeling of the body or a sensation or a sound, whatever else. Just to get the mind settled down somewhat. But 
we don't, it, meditation, we don't go for perfect, right? Because we begin to understand that perfection is a really, it's a concept, it's an idea, and it's very elusive. So we're just being here in the moment as best we possibly can. And we don't consider the mind jumping all over the place as a failure because it isn't, it's just the natural mind. Our meditation practice is to understand the mind, not to control it, not to make it look different. What you will notice is after a while, after you keep bringing it back, it probably will settle down a little bit more. But if it doesn't, it's okay, right? Yes. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Or I can. Um, I've only practiced metta meditation a couple times. There's always been like, in a group and kind of guided, and um, I've never practiced it with you, so I was wondering if you practice it and what your um, script is, or you know, what language you use, because it seems like everybody uses a slightly different variation. Okay, so the the questions about metta meditation and you said you've never practiced it with me so you wondered if I practice it at all and um, if so what my what script I use is that the word you use um, so how many people don't know what metta meditation is very good yep how, let me see the other hands yeah yeah quite a few um, so metta meditation is um, a practice of loving-kindness, of cultivating a heart of loving-kindness. Um, and it's a, both a concentration practice, just like watching the breath is a con concentration practice, and it's also um, a practice of cultivation of the heart. Because what we do is, in a, um, we choose particular people to whom we're going to address loving-kindness and um, we pay attention to them in sequence so we start with ourselves and then we go to what we call a benefactor somebody who's been really good to us in our lives then a friend then a neutral person then a difficult person and then all beings and to each per with each person we bring them up in our hearts and in our minds and we address certain phrases of kindness so we may, for instance, say, um, may I be happy and peaceful, may I be safe from harm, may I be healthy and strong, and may I live with ease. And uh, we do that over and over and over again, and then we move on to the benefactor, etc., etc. And it's a, it's a really beautiful practice, and it's a practice that is um, really helpful in... Uh, in the mindfulness meditation practice too because it cultivates a heart of kindness so that our um, mindfulness meditation doesn't get harsh and dry because it can. We can get to um, using our meditation in the same way that we use so many other things in our lives to judge ourselves, to not measure up, to not be good enough, etc. And the metta meditation or the metta practice itself is helpful in, um, in counteracting that and balancing that so that 
we keep reminding ourselves that, that of that intention that we talked about in the beginning in the instructions of kindness or goodwill, that we have goodwill and kindness towards every being. Well, we know that that's an ideal, right? That is there one or two people in your life you don't feel that goodwill for? I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Um, and yet, uh, our overriding intention is to cultivate goodwill and kindness. So this metta practice is one way of doing that. And yes, indeed, I do practice it. And I usually practice it um, at the beginning of, a, of my own practice and at the end of my own practice. I don't teach it so much um, when I teach meditation in groups, um, mostly because most people, we have a mixed group of, in terms of experience, and I want to teach the basic um, mindfulness practice, but, but um, meta practice is really a, a, good, a good idea, so if you're interested in it, you know, just Google it, and I'm sure you'll just find lots of people online. Um, I teach a, a retreat uh, every February at IMS um, that is just uh, Brahma Vihara practice, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Um, and that's, we just do mindfulness practice the first day, and every, the rest of the week is, is metta, and, and it's... Um, other and the other practice, the other Brahma Vihara practices. So I hope that's helpful. Okay. No other questions about meditation, per se, or I should say, any other questions about meditation, per se. We have a question. Oh, hear it. Let's hear it. Is there a way that we sit, or do all people sit differently? So tell me why you're asking the question. Are you having trouble sitting yourself, or deciding how to sit? Is that it? So show me how you sit, how you'd sit. Can you show me? Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, so that, you know what that's called? That's called the Burmese style of sitting, right? Which is like that, so that's how I sit. But some people sit in what's called the half lotus, and some people sit in the full lotus, which I'm not going to show you tonight because I think I'm, ah, I can. Okay. So, some, so different people sit in different ways. You can sit kneeling like this, either on a cushion like that, so you sit on your knees, or you can sit with a, on a bench. That, that sits across like that, and you sit, you tuck your feet under. Or you can sit in a chair like many people are sitting. Uh, so there are a lot of different ways, and what you, what you need to do is, if you're interested, is to experiment, right? And see what works best for you. Because if, if we want to sit for long periods of time, we have to find a, a way that's comfortable. So some people can sit like this, other people need to sit a little bit higher. And if you're having trouble sitting, is that not comfortable for you? You're not sure? Huh? You're not sure? 
How does that feel right now? Kind of comfortable. Kind of comfortable. <laughs> you know why everybody's laughing? Because they can, they all feel that the same way. Kind of comfortable. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. And what happens is over time, as you practice more and more, is your body gets used to it. So I can sit like this now for a long time and feel perfectly comfortable, but it took a long time to get there. So experiment and try it in a chair, for instance, if you'd like to do that. Or just try, you know, try a little bit in a chair, try. But do it like each sitting period, use just one posture. And then if, you, if your knees get stiff or your legs get stiff, you know, you could just kind of quietly do that, you know, and give yourself some relief. And that's okay too. Does that, does that answer your question? Great, thanks. Okay. Thank you for that question because I'm sure quite a few other people had it too. Right? So I had a talk prepared tonight that I don't think I'm going to give. <laughs> because it doesn't feel like it's the right talk for tonight. Um, so what I'd like is for you to give me some suggestions of things that you'd like to hear me talk about and we'll create a Dharma talk together. Yes? Celibacy. 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 Okay. Anger. Anger. No self. No self. Frustration. Frustration. Celibacy, anger, no self, and frustration. and frustration. Okay. Anything else? No joy. <laughs> Love. Love. Faith. Faith. Abundance. And abundance. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> or we'll be here till midnight. When I was in college, a boyfriend of mine told me I was loquacious. And I thought it was such a beautiful word. I thought, oh. He probably, me I didn't know, I'd never heard the word before, so I had no idea what that was. And I thought, oh, thank you so much, that's so wonderful. Right. And then, of course, I went home and looked it up, and it meant I talked too much. So. Um. So celibacy, which is the first uh, thing. I wonder why you asked the question about celibacy. Finding a meaningful way to deal with celibacy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's just you have to acknowledge that. 
It's just... We have to acknowledge the fact that at our core, it's just you and God. So I might use different language than you use, right? So, you know, one of the things that um, we discover when we practice meditation is how much we want things. So we want to be happy. That's wholesome. We want are the people we love to be happy, that's also wholesome. And there are lots of other things that we want, and a lot of the time when we, dis- when we examine desire, we examine wants, what we begin to notice is that a lot of what we want is what we don't have. Or, a lot, and a lot of what we want is to have more of what we think of as the good stuff and less of what we think of as the bad stuff. And what we realize is that if we are really paying attention is that the wanting and the satisfying of the wanting is endless. That there, is a, there are two ways in the Buddha's language of Pali that wanting is expressed. Desire in the English language really is, covers all of our desires, all of our wants. But in the Pali language, there are two. One is chanda, which is a, um, a wholesome way of, a wholesome desire. For instance, the desire to live a life of renunciation and harmlessness and goodwill. And then there's another wanting or desire word, which is tanha, or thirst. And so when the Buddha gave his teachings on the Four Noble Truths, which which is his basic teaching, he said there is dukkha, there is suffering, that's the first noble truth. And the second truth is that there's a cause for that suffering, which is tanha, this thirst, this thirst that, and of course, what is it about thirst? Thirst can never be slaked. It can never be satisfied. And so we're in a constant um, pursuit of those things for which we are thirsty. And they never satisfy us. Why? Because when they're, when they're enjoyable, when they're pleasurable, they, like everything else, end. And when they're not pleasurable, which of course is not what we want, but sometimes they come, we don't have control over making them go away. So we have this wanting, this desire, this thirst for things that keeps us constantly at war with how things are. And um, our sexual desire, of course, has the ability to have the same kind of uh, duality, where it can be a desire to express something really beautiful with another human being, 
or it can be a desire to satisfy certain physical needs. And the, the issue, I think, with celibacy is that we may set up a, um, a kind of duality, right, where this is good and this is bad, right? Celibacy is wonderful and um, satisfying our sexual desire is not. Or celibacy is bad because I have to restrain myself and satisfying my sexual desire is good. And yet our practice, really, what does our practice teach us? It teaches us that we can be, uh, that we can be free of this constant desire for things to be a certain way in order for us to be happy, right? So it's not about the celibacy itself or the satisfaction of sexual desire itself, but really it's more a question of how we go about it. So we can go about celibacy the same way we went about promiscuity, right? Which is an, in an unbalanced uh, way that is either about desire or aversion, greed or aversion. Or we can go about it in a way of uh, renunciation because we are working towards something where it, within the context of that something that we're working towards, it makes sense, right? We want to understand something about desire, for instance. So we set up a situation in which for a certain period of time we'll be celibate to understand desire, right? Not because we think it's bad. Or we're celibate because we take vows. We're monastic vows. You know, in the, in the, the, the monastics in our, in our traditions um, vow to be celibate. And then they deal with those demons, whatever they are, that arise. So, in some ways, I, my reflections lately have been not so much about what, but about how. It's like not about what we're doing, but how we're doing it. So whatever our intentions are, our intentions can on the surface seem really pure and beautiful, and yet the way we decide to implement them can negate all of that beauty and that purity. So we can decide not to be celibate and live a very pure life. And we can decide to be celibate and live a very impure life. So it's not about the what, but about the how. And your intention is, you know, the Tibetans say intention rests on the tip of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, everything rests on the tip of motivation or the tip of intention. So it's really a question of examining our intention, examining our motivation, and examining how we go about satisfying those intentions and motivations so that our practice becomes not something that we do in the morning for 15 minutes or half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour or two hours, but something that carries throughout the day with that constant question is, what am I intending? And when I carry out my intention, what is the impact of that intention on my own life? 
and on the life of others that I, um, that I encounter. So somebody asked about anger and, and about frustration. That's, that's essentially, uh, you know, that, that in, includes the same kinds of questioning that we enter into when we're practitioners. So anger and frustration are going to arise. We're human. We're in this human soup. We're living in it. We're, this is, we're swimming in this soup together, all of us. And we, when we encounter each other, we rub, right? So we get frustrated. And frustration is kind of that bridge between desire and anger, right? Because frust- frustration is usually desires that are somehow um, rebuffed. They're not satisfied. So we get frustrated because we want something really badly and it doesn't happen. And so frustration then inevitably, if not, um, if, if, we're, if we don't meet it with awareness and with kindness, frustration becomes anger, right? Because we think we're entitled to something or we should get something that we don't get. So how do we deal with anger? Who asked about anger? Why did you ask? I'm dealing with different personal issues where I have trouble expressing things and not knowing when it's helping to react to So just kind of being able to know when it's okay to be angry and how to sort of let it go. Yeah. So how to work with anger is really your question. So I, I have a story, which is that when I was doing prison work, I, I, I uh, taught meditation in a prison as a volunteer for several years and I'd go three or four times a week and I, I was working in the um, in the medical facility in the prison and uh, this woman asked me about uh, dealing with her anger and asked me if I would teach her how to deal with anger. And she explained to me that her, her brother was the deacon of the Christian church. And I said, well, you need to get his permission. If, you're, if that's your practice, you need to get his permission that you'll, you, that, you know, that I can teach you Buddhist meditation. So I came back the next week and she said she'd spoken to her brother indeed and he had said, he had answered her by saying, Jesus said to meditate without ceasing, which I thought was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, and I, and I um, encountered a, a, a phrase from, that was attributed to Christ actually the other day where he said, if your eye is single, your body will be full of light. And I think that he was directly referring to meditation. Because obviously in meditation, uh, we make the eye single because we pay attention in such a focused way. Anyway, I I digress. I'm loquacious. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so so she, I, I said, what's the problem with anger? And she said, well, that's what landed me here. And, um, and I really, you know, 
I really want to. She had a. She had to have daily dialysis because she had a kidney problem. She had a really bad kidney, and she said, "If I die here, I want to not die as an angry person." And so I said, "Okay, well, this is probably going to take a while, right? Because these kinds of habits develop over years, right? Our reaction to situations is anger." We take a long time developing that as a mental habit, a way of responding or reacting. So I said, "Okay,、um, you know, I taught her how to meditate, and I said, the next time anger comes up in a situation, you know, what do you usually do?" And she said, "Well, you know, somebody says something to me, and I get really angry, and so I." You know, lash out at them, and before I know it, I might be in a fight, and I get punished, and you know, it's a whole thing.、I、said, okay, so the next time somebody says something and you get angry, what I'd like you to do is to just pay attention to the anger. So I'm teaching you how to meditate. So use your meditation, use your anger as the subject of your meditation in that moment, and notice the physical sensations. Notice the story in the mind, the emotion that's coming up. You know, your whole experience of anger, and that's all I want you to do for now, right? And then, when I come back next next time, I want you to tell me what happened. So the next time I came back, she was waiting at the door for me, right? And she said, "I have to tell you what happened." I said. She said somebody said something, and I got really angry, and I I I wanted to punch her in the mouth. And she said, "I heard your voice, right? And I saw your face, and I stopped." And and she said, "Oh, Gina said that it's not my anger, that I'm not angry, that it's just anger, and that I should observe it, because that's what I said to her." And she said, "I couldn't believe it. I started to laugh <laughs> because she said, as I observed it, it was doing all this funny stuff in my body. Like it felt like it was like popping out of my body, and my head started to throb." And she described this experience of anger that was the most mindful description I've ever heard of anger. She went into it in minute detail. And I, I was completely blown away because I thought it was going to take me like six months before she would have an experience like that, and it took her exactly like three days or something. It was, it was incredible, and I thought, well, look at that, how powerful that is. Just the understanding. And somebody asked about no self. Is that you? Just the understanding that we're not a thing, right? And that nothing is a thing. And what I mean by that is the understanding that there is nothing that's impermanent, but we look at ourselves as nothing that's permanent. We look at ourselves as permanent. I'm an angry person. I'm a fill-in-the-blank kind of person. I'm a bright person. I'm a stupid person. I'm an angry person. I'm a peaceful person. I'm a Generous person. Oh, I'm a mean person. It's not true. None of it is true. 
she was not an angry person. Anger, of course, arises. It arises in all of us. It's not a problem when it arises. The problem is when we take it as an identity and whatever the offense is, we think that offense has been done to me and I must do something about it. Rather than knowing, oh, right in this moment, this is how things are, right? There's this physical experience of the belly tightening and the adrenaline rushing to the belly and the head throbbing and heat rising, all of these physical experiences. And then there's a story. She does this to me all the time. She says this to me all the time. I'm not taking this anymore. This is an insult. I can't allow this to go on. I can't. So a whole story about it. And then there's an emotion, usually, which is completely buried. That, that's the part that's the least accessible. It's fear, sadness, dread, some kind of um, reassertion of a trauma, of a past trauma, something, some emotion is happening. But it starts with this understanding that this is reality happening, that we're not a thing. We're not angry. We're not we're not permanently angry, we're not permanently joyous, we're not permanently generous, we're, that situations change and so do we. That everything is impermanent, that if we pay attention in every moment, if we're really paying attention, the f one of the things that we notice is impermanence. So when Natalie asked the question about how do I make my mind stop, right? Pay attention. It feels like too simple, right? For all of the complexity of what it means to be human. But what we discover when we really pay attention is that attention <laughs> allows appropriate response. Inattention allows reactivity. Those are two very different ways of responding to, a, to any situation. When we're in appropriate response, we are meeting what is true in this moment. When we're in reactivity, we're meeting this moment based on something that happened in the past or something that we think is going to happen in the future. We're not responding to now. We're not responding to everything internal and everything external in this moment. But we're way back in what happened before. And based on that, some fear of what might happen next. So if we're, if, so, but we don't want to wait until that moment of anger to practice. So that's why we practice when things are, we, we create environments like this in which to practice so that it's as neutral and, as, and it feels as safe as possible and it's not charged. 
it's a it's a still it's a relatively still and peaceful environment where we can train the mind meditation is not about getting states of mind it's not anything even remotely close to that remotely close that was an oxymoron but it's not even it's not close to that at all meditation is training the mind it's training the mind it's not trying to get a state it's not trying to get relaxed it's not trying to get calm it's not trying to get focused it's not trying to get anything it's not trying it's just being here and seeing the mind which is what Natalie saw it's mind stuff going on all the time so when we train the mind it's not that we have to stuff our anger down but we see it for what it is on the night of the buddha's enlightenment when the story about mara who is like you know the tempter and the the that that part of us that is always um making trouble when he appears in the night of the buddha's enlightenment and he he um he says you know what right have you to sit when he tries all kinds of things and it doesn't um it doesn't work why doesn't it work because he doesn't throw the buddha off of his seat why because the buddha keeps saying to him i see you mara and you don't fool me right so when we see our anger it doesn't fool us but when we get caught by it we're totally gone so can we see it can we see it can we see it for what it is and when we see it for what it is it changes it shifts because what's the heisenberg principle that the observer changes the experiment right always it's impossible to have an experiment where you take the um the factor of the observer out because in order for it to be an experiment there has to be an observer but the observer also is influencing the experiment so our anger when we observe it is going to shift the anger but if we get caught by it or sunk so this idea of self and no self it's not that we want to um we have some belief that the buddha said there's no self so there's no self so i don't have a self no that's not it what it is is the pointing to our to to us a reminder to us that we sit here we come here to sit because we think change is possible and we don't make change happen because we come here to sit we come here and join with change because it exists all the time change is inherent in nature it's not change is not happening because we make it happen it's because it happens constantly constantly everything is impermanent and we are included in that our moods are impermanent our thoughts are impermanent our emotions are impermanent 
everything is impermanent. So we don't have to grab onto anything that's in the moment and say, this is who I am. Because it's not true. It's not who you are. So um, that's about all I think I want to say about not-self. There was something else that I'm missing. Faith. Faith and and abundance. Ah, now we get to the real stuff. (laughs) So what's wonderful about uh, the Buddha's teachings is that he didn't, he never ever said, believe what, take what I say and adopt it as a new belief system. And I think many of us who have been practicing for a long time, and even maybe some of you who are new, are um, come to practice um, not as a not because we need a new belief system but because we want to examine the belief systems we've already consciously and unconsciously adopted and the ones that are the most dangerous are the unconscious ones right when our beliefs are invisible they rule us And what's beautiful about this practice for me is that I am not required to believe anything, so I can come to it just as I am. And in fact, there's a story of the Buddha going into a town to teach. He was invited to teach, but as he because he never went anywhere unless he was invited to teach. And as he walked into the town, somebody said to him, you know, you're like one in a string of teachers. Like we've had this teacher and that teacher and everybody, and everybody comes and they all say something different. And we don't know who to believe and why should we believe you? And the Buddha said, you shouldn't believe me because what I teach First, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. In other words, I'm not teaching you to believe a certain thing. And what I ask of you is not that you believe what I say, but if it sounds at all reasonable, to put it into practice. And then when you put it into practice, and you should do this for any other teacher who, you set, who comes to this town who says something that you feel makes sense and might be helpful. Put them into practice. And if you put these, the teachings into practice and you find that the results are wholesome, then you should adopt it. If you find that the results are unwholesome, let it go. So he said, don't believe me because I'm a teacher. Don't believe anybody because they come in and tell you that they're a teacher. Don't believe anything anybody says before you have tested it for yourself. And for me, this is a very uh, important teaching um, and one that 
really gave me a lot of assurance, reassurance when I first entered this path that um, I don't, I can rely on my own experience, my own wisdom, my own clarity to say how I should live. That if I'm kind and compassionate and balanced and wise and I act on those conditions and I observe that with kindness that is what is returned to me. With anger that is what is returned to me. With compassion that is what is returned to me. That cruelty that is what is returned to me. So however I act I notice oh that's what comes back. Because with our, with our thoughts and our emotions we shape our minds. And when, however the mind is shaped, that's how the world is shaped. So if we have um, thoughts of abundance, we will see abundance everywhere. If, we, if our minds are trained in scarcity, we will see scarcity everywhere. So our, our practice is to really keep observing when my mind is like this, what happens? When my heart is like this, what happens? So that nothing that comes up, so if you're sitting and some angry thought comes up, it's not, oh, I'm <laughs> meditating, I can't be angry. No, 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 no. Good luck anyway, you know, once the thought has come up, ha, right? It catches you, doesn't it? But rather to say, oh, this is an opportunity to observe the angry mind. And we don't have to take it on as an identity to, to observe it. As a matter of fact, if we do, we can't observe it. So thoughts of abundance or an, or an understanding of the abundance of the universe you know, just being here, being on the earth in the summer and seeing all the fruit that the farmers can bring and the flowers that appear and all of that. There's abundance everywhere. But if we're walking around with a hood over our face, our heads, thinking, oh, there's not enough for me, there's not enough for me, then we don't even notice. We don't notice the abundance. So it's how we train the mind. With our minds, we make the world. With our minds, we make the world. Anything else I'm missing? So that's enough. That's enough of my loquacity, <laughs> my loquaciousness. Sorry? So there's a question, yeah? Anais? Is that Anais? Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, um, what do you think is more important? Um, you were talking about abundance and how you think 
being really important in, in shaping your world. So, and then there's emptying, emptying the mind. And I'm always trying to figure out. So, when you say emptying the mind, what do you mean? Um, I think it became, it became really difficult for me to kind of train my mind in a way, to, uh, or to, um, you know, negative self speak, and then kind of saying, you know, trying to figure out ways to change that, that mm -hmm. inner dialogue. So, my, my focus became more of. Space, just creating space. Mm -hmm. so and how did that work for you? Awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. So, so that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is with metta. So, you know, again, there, it's two steps. So with our thoughts, the, the, the exact words of the Buddha is, uh, where we put the mind, that's where it will incline. And then another set of sayings was, with our thoughts we make the world, think or act with a, with a joyful thought and happiness will follow you, etc. Um, so one way of working with it is allowing the thoughts to arise, allowing them because we really, what you may have, what Natalie noticed is, I don't have control over this mind. It's just like coming, you know, the thoughts are being produced. And, you know, that's what our minds are supposed to do. They're supposed to produce <laughs> thoughts, right? So it's not like we're going to sit down with it, with it and say, okay, for the next 45 minutes, you're not going to produce a thought, right? So guess what will happen? You'll be thinking about that sentence about not producing a thought, right? But we can notice the thoughts. We can notice the, the quality of the thoughts. We can notice the content of the thought. We can notice the process of thought. We can begin to know everything about thinking that's to be known. And, you know, I, okay, so spoiler alert, right? When you do that, the mind quiets down. or not. <laughs> but most of the time it does quiet down. And it's not that you failed if it doesn't, which is a lot of the time what people think meditation is, is you know, that space is created. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. So if you can't create that space, what are you going to do? You know what thinking is like. Now that takes a little bit of skill. So in the beginning, that's why most of the time, most teachers will teach you to just watch your breath in the beginning, because that's what's going to train the mind to kind of settle down. And the Buddha used a, a metaphor of, it's like a, a post to which six animals are tied. And the, the animals walk around the post when you first tie them to it because they don't quite know what to do or where to go and they're used to walking around. But eventually when they realize that they're tethered to this post, they'll just sit. You've seen cows, right? They just kind of sit, right? Well, the six animals he was, the metaphor he was using 
uh, was that those are like our six senses, seeing, smelling, touching, tasting, hearing, thinking. So, and the post was the practice of moment-to-moment awareness, mindfulness. That if we keep practicing it, if we keep practicing it, we keep practicing it, eventually the senses will all settle down. And that's what's usually um, moving things around, is the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the touching, the tasting, the thinking, is, make, is stirring the mind up. So we tether them to this awareness in the present moment, and they settle. The negative self-speak can also be countered with, practice, with a practice of metta, practice of loving-kindness. So you, you're no damn good, you've never been any good, you'll never be any good. May you be happy. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I love myself completely. Whatever you think might be helpful to you, you use your own phrases. And it's really interesting, I've found, that when you do that, when you're able to meet, you know that negative self-speak is coming up, and you're able to meet it with some measure of kindness. And in the beginning, it's like every practice, it feels awkward and it feels like, "Ah, I don't want to do this, this is stupid, or whatever the judgment is about it. You do it anyway, right? Just Just like when you start physical practice, you know, yoga or gymnastics or whatever, in the beginning, your body feels awkward, it doesn't know how to do it, and then eventually, the body settles in, meditation is exactly the same way, or playing an instrument, or whatever it is we learn. In the beginning, it's always awkward. But if we, if we push through and we keep gently insisting on practicing, eventually all of the resistance starts to dissipate gently and kindly. You don't have to make it go away. You just keep doing it. You just keep doing it, and you're really kind to yourself. You're as kind as you can possibly be. And you'll find that over time, it's like a river and wearing a rock away, and it eventually becomes river stones. They become much smaller and more pliable. But in the beginning, it felt like that big rock, right? That you, that you can't imagine that gentle water could wear away, but it does. And metta is like that. It's the same way. You just practice it, and you practice it, and you practice it. Any other questions? Okay, so let's do some metta practice then to end. So the first instruction with metta meditation is to sit in a way that's really comfortable. Still alert, but comfortable. And you can either start with yourself, or you can start with a benefactor. 
whichever feels easiest for you to, to begin to feel some kindness towards yourself or to the, towards the benefactor. And the way you practice is by bringing to mind in, or into your heart a picture of yourself, either as you are now, the felt sense of who you are now, how you are, or a picture of yourself when you were a small child or when you felt yourself to be really lovable. And if you feel as if that's like not accessible, then please um, just bring to mind or bring into your heart a really as vivid a picture as you can of your benefactor, of someone who's been really good to you, a mentor, a teacher, um, an animal, a child, someone that just really brings, the texts say, someone who really brings a big smile to your face. And bring that person really into your heart, either yourself or that person. And really get a very clear picture and felt sense of that person. And there are four classical wishes, but you can create your own wishes. But whatever wishes you create for this person, I'm going to ask you to use those wishes for everyone else too. So make them relatively generic, not so specific to this person. But the four um, classical wishes are, may you be safe and protected from all harm and danger. So wishing for this person's safety, your own or theirs. May I be safe from harm. The second wish is, may I be happy and peaceful. And if you want to put your hand on your heart to really connect, that's fine too. And the third wish is, may you be healthy. Or may I be healthy. May I be completely healthy of body, mind, heart, and spirit. And the fourth wish is may I live with ease and well-being. So four wishes, safety, peace and happiness, health, and ease. And you repeat those phrases but repeat them in a very kind of rhythmic way, not rushing, but not being too slow either, just at a really good rhythmic pace. May I be safe from harm. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be healthy and strong. And may I live with ease. Or whatever wishes you would like to have for yourself. safety, peace and happiness, health and ease.
And once you have this feeling of kindness towards yourself or your benefactor, if you've been with yourself, move it on to your benefactor, bring a clear picture of your benefactor in, or if you've been with your benefactor, try it with yourself now. That same feeling of kindness and of well-wishing. May you be safe from harm. May you be healthy. May you be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy and live with ease. And whatever is arising is okay, even if it's the very opposite of kindness. Perhaps you can address your kindness to those feelings too. And usually we would go through from, to a friend and to a neutral person. So let's move to the neutral person Perhaps there's somebody in the room that you've overlooked or that you've seen and you've just not paid much attention to. And bring that person to mind or somebody at your work or in your building where you live. And see if you can bring a pretty clear picture of that person and send him or her, your wishes of kindness and goodwill. May you be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and may you live with ease. And usually we would move to a difficult person but we're going to move to just addressing your loving kindness to every being in this room, wishing that all beings here be happy and peaceful, safe from harm, healthy, and live with ease. May each and every one of you be safe from harm. May each and every one of you be happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. And as you're sending your wishes of goodwill to every being here, recognize that you are receiving those same wishes of goodwill from every being here. So what does it feel like to send and to receive metta? Just sit and be in that shower of goodness and goodwill, kindness. May you be safe. May you be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy and strong and live with ease. And then sending it out to all beings everywhere in all directions, above, below, north, south, east, west, and all of the other points in between, all beings everywhere without exception, omitting none. 
feeling like a mother would protect with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart, should we care for all beings. May all beings be safe from harm, be happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. Coming to the end of the evening, we dedicate the merits of the practice that we've done together here, the meditation practice, the speaking and listening, the reflection. They've created a field of merit, which we dedicate to the whole world, to the well-being, the awakening, and the complete freedom of all beings everywhere without exception. May it be so. Thank you all so much. Have a good night.